0: I don't know if you know this or not, but there are four books in the New Testament that consist of only one chapter. That's it. One-chapter books. They are Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Jude. And these books are not just short in comparison to others, but they are also the least read books in the entire New Testament. I think the reason for that is we tend to flip past them as we're thumbing our way through the pages of the Bible. And secondly, I think we assume that they don't have anything important to say to us. But I have found that whenever you take the time to to really read and to study the Scriptures, they will speak to you. If you read the Bible seeking wisdom and truth, you'll find example after example of principles on how to live in that way. But when we read the Bible, just to say we read the Bible, to sign it off of our little task thing to do in Christianity, we can really miss out on the purpose of what it was that we actually read, because it's really not getting into us the way that it should. And these four books that I've mentioned, they contain powerful principles in which to live by. They're not just filler books designed to make the Bible thicker. They are full of inspired words that are written to help us. And living in this crazy world, That we're living in god knows that we need help on how to live and how to navigate in these days in which we live because in case you haven't noticed as a follower of christ we are a minority christians are a minority in our culture and therefore we are often marginalized and we are often criticized for our beliefs that we derive from the truth of god's word and naturally when we see all of the inequity and we see all of the troubles and the chaos that is going on in our land, when we clearly see all the wrong that that is happening because people have chosen to turn their backs on God, it makes us want to do something. It makes us want to take action. It makes us want to stand up and say, this isn't right. There is a better way. And even though that's how we feel, and that's what we're thinking, most oftentimes we don't act. We seem to devolve to this mindset that says, well, it's just too big of a problem. I'm just one person. What what could I possibly do that could make a difference in this world? And sadly, we just kind of put it back up on a shelf and we leave it there. But the Bible is full of moments where one person, through the power of the Holy Spirit, made a huge difference. People just like you and me who made a mark on their society, and they made an indelible impression for the kingdom of God. And these four insignificant books that I have mentioned to you this morning provide us with principles on how to do that. And I wanted to share them with you in this short series that we're going to do called Short Truths. Today we are going to begin with the book of Philemon. It's a short book of only 25 verses, And it is sandwiched between Titus and Hebrews. In fact, you can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. If not, we will have all of the scriptures up on the screen behind me. This is such a short book that you'll never even find it by accident. You have to be looking for it, or you'll never even see it, it's so small. And I think we can sum up what this book is all about by mentioning the three people who are intimately attached to it. First, we have the Apostle Paul. He is the writer of this book or this epistle. And like our study that we just finished in Colossians, he is writing this from prison in Rome. Secondly, there is Philemon. He's a Christian slave owner who lives in the city of Colossae in Asia Minor, and he was a respected Christian leader. He is a close friend of Paul, and many scholars surmise that Paul personally led him to faith in Christ Jesus, though we are not certain of that at all. This letter was written primarily to Philemon, and it's personal, and yet it has application for everyone. And let me explain what I mean by that. In his opening greeting in Philemon chapter, or excuse me, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I am writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister, Aphia, and to our fellow soldier, Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. Since uh, Philemon hosted a church in his home, this epistle was intended to be shared with the leaders and the congregation of that church as well. The third person in this story is named Onesimus. Onemesis, I'm sorry, I, I have a hard time with his name. He is a runaway slave and he has come to Rome where he has met Paul, and Paul has led him to faith in Christ Jesus. And it's possible, though we cannot be certain about this, that he met Paul through his friendship, Paul's friendship with Philemon, and that's why he sought Paul out in Rome. In any case, we know that Paul led Onesimus to Christ, and he stayed in Rome, and he served Paul with deep gratitude. And so that brings us to the central issue of this short letter. Paul now has a converted slave on his hand. So what should he do? Well, he decides to send Onesimus back to Philemon, his master. But Onesimus is now a believer in Christ. He left Philemon as a rebel, but now he will be returning as a brother in the Lord. And Paul wants to make sure that Philemon understands what has happened And that's why he writes this letter or this epistle. Now, before we move ahead, you have to know a little bit of something about slavery in the first century. Although slavery occasionally was practiced in Israel, it was never widespread, and it was carefully regulated by Old Testament law. In stark contrast, in Rome, the entire empire was built on slave labor. Every time that the Romans conquered a a new province, they added new slaves to their numbers. Scholars tell us that in Paul's day in Rome, there were far more slaves than there actually were Roman citizens. It It would not have been unusual for a wealthy man at that time to literally have thousands of slaves. In short, slavery was so commonplace and so accepted that no one thought seriously to oppose it. Furthermore, Roman law provided little protection for slaves because they were regarded as property and not as, as people. Owners could could literally mistreat their slaves, even kill them with little or no legal retaliation. The law specifically provided that owners could put runaway slaves to death. Presumably that was some kind of a warning to other slaves who might choose to flee, so slavery was a way of life in Rome, and at the same time, it was a moral issue for the Christians in Rome. And it was at this, it was one of those cultural issues that barring a complete change of of the way of thinking within the citizenry there, a complete mindset change, it could not easily be reversed. And yet Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Why? This is the central question of this book. How could, could he do that? I mean, didn't Paul know that, that slavery was wrong in the eyes of God? And if he knew that, why didn't he say so? These are questions that have troubled Christians over the centuries. And I even touched on it in our series in the book of, about the book of Colossians. So as we begin to delve into this very short book, we're going to discover that its message has amazing relevance for the moral problems of our own time, as well as how to approach them in a fruitful way. Because this little letter from, from the Apostle Paul is a masterpiece in persuasion. If you want to know how to write a letter to someone to try to convince them to do something, then you need to study the way that Paul approaches Philemon. Because in the end, his appeal is literally irresistible. Let's go to verses four through seven, and I'm going to be reading today from the New Living Translation, in case you're wondering. Paul writes, I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. So Paul begins by reminding Philemon of all the prayers that have gone heavenward on on Paul's behalf for Philemon. But he continues in verses 8 and 9 when he says this, That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ, because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus." Paul is pointing out to Philemon that he could have pulled rank and he could have simply ordered Philemon to do what he's about to ask him to do, but instead he chooses to approach him as a friend and not as a boss. So what is it that he's asking Philemon to do? Let's look at verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. He wants Philemon to receive Onesimus, his runaway slave, as a Christian brother. The good news is that Onesimus is in Rome, he is with Paul, and he has become a believer in Christ. And Paul himself has led Onesimus to Jesus, and that's why he refers to him in this Scripture as my son. But now comes some more news. Paul has decided to send Onesimus back to Philemon. And he does this even though he would have preferred to keep him in Rome because he was such a good helper. But Paul respected the laws of the day, and likewise, he trusted in Philemon's Christian character that he would do the right thing in this situation. I mean, would Paul have sent him back if he had doubts about what would happen? We certainly don't know the answer to that question. But look at verses 12 and 13. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I am in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. So here, Paul adds a a nice little touch, and one that is certain to reach Philemon's heart. Paul held Philemon in such high regard that he appealed to his heart of love, both for Paul and ultimately for God. Because in verse 14, he says this, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. And then there's a wonderful statement here about God's providence in verses 15 and 16. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you, He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord." Paul suggests here that God allowed Onesimus to run away so that he would find Paul in Rome and that he would find and fall into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and thus be sent back to Philemon, not as a slave, but as a Christian brother. So in none of these verses Does Paul explicitly tell Philemon to release Omnisimus, but he comes very, very close to it. In any case, we see here Paul's amazing faith in the invisible hand of God moving throughout all parts of human history, including the life of this slave. Then an even more personal appeal is found in verse 17. He says to Philemon, "'So if you consider me your partner,' Welcome him as you would welcome me. So the question becomes, what about anything that Onesimus may have stolen before he left Colossae on his journey to freedom? Who will pay those debts and any other debts that that he may have incurred? I want you to look at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. And then in capital letters he, he said, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Another translation says, you owe me your very self. Well, Paul says that he himself will pay those debts, therefore erasing any final objections that Philemon could possibly have. He says if he has done anything wrong, if he owes you anything, then bill it to me.' And, after, and a, ha, after having made this appeal, Paul closes with some very positive words of affirmation. He knows that Philemon will welcome Onesimus back, and he will treat him as a Christian brother. In verses 20 and 21, he says this, "'Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ.' I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask, and even more." Then he has one final sentence that kind of puts a smile on your face when you read it, when he says in verse 22, one more thing, please prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Paul tells Philemon that he intends to visit him in person, and that would normally be a great honor to think that the the apostle himself would come to a visit, but it would also serve as a not so subtle motivation for him to welcome Onesimus kindly. Paul is very persuasive in his approach to his friend Philemon. He pulls out all the stops in just 25 verses of this short book. He touches on every positive motivation that he can use, and all the while, he is appealing to love and not simply to duty. And now you know what this book of Philemon is all about. So, what is it that Paul wants Philemon to do with this returned slave? Well, he wants him to forgive him, he wants him to restore him, and he wants him to receive him as a brother in Christ. No other slave owner would have done anything like that. Paul is asking Philemon to bring Christian principles into the evil system of slavery. Without attempting to overturn the whole system, Paul injects Christian grace in this situation where previously human selfishness and greed would have reigned. Now, we don't know what happened when Philemon read this letter. The New Testament never tells us the rest of the story. However, historical tradition tells us that he freed Onesimus, who later became the Bishop of Ephesus. Isn't that interesting? And so as I read this letter, there are definitely parallels. And I'm talking about parallels for followers of Jesus Christ living in this overwhelmingly pagan culture of ours that we live in today. As minorities. We are a minority, as I said earlier, on just how to respond to great difficulties and the cultural issues that we face. And this cannot be overlooked. It really needs to be addressed. It's very timely because today we wrestle with issues like abortion and moral decline and, and violence and racism and, and the breakdown of, of, of the traditional family and relativism. We struggle with this worldwide global effort to make adultery and homosexuality and bisexuality and transsexuality and pansexuality and any other kind of sexual sin as acceptable. We battle with the exclusion of of Christian values in the public square, in our public schools, in our national media, from our politicians, and on our leading universities around this nation. And you can add to that the rising tide of intolerance towards people like us who believe that there is absolute truth, that there is right and wrong, and it is found in the Scriptures. So this little letter to Philemon reminds us that none of these things are new. In one form or another, Christians have struggled with issues, moral issues for the last 2,000 years. So how then should we live? Well this morning, I wanna propose five qualities that I believe will serve you well as you operate in this world. From a minority position, with the first one being this, patience, patience. I find it interesting that nowhere does Paul condemn slavery. While he introduced Christian principles into the slave slash master relationship in the book of Colossians that we studied just weeks ago, nowhere did he order Christians to free all their slaves. Now to some of you that might be, seem like a lack of courage but it is all too easy for us to judge other people without understanding the larger context of what was going on there. You see, Paul was, though he had revolutionary results, Paul in and of himself was not a revolutionary. In fact, I wonder how he would have approached the problem of abortion in our day. Would he stand outside and pick at the hospitals that perform abortions, or would he stand outside of the Planned Parenthood facilities? I no doubt for a moment believe that he would not condemn, or that he, he, he would certainly condemn the wanton destruction of the unborn, but would he also concern himself with changing the laws of the land? Or would he support those who would trying to change the laws of the land and to that end? Well, that question cannot be answered definitively. However, one thing you can say with certainty is that Paul himself was a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew that the the gospel was the power of God for salvation. He even wrote so in Romans chapter 1. And like we discussed in the Made for More series, he believed it could transform the most hardened hearts walking the face of the earth. His letter to Philemon suggests that as the gospel message penetrates society, it literally changes hearts. It changes actions. It changes people's behaviors and their outlook on moral issues. In the end, slavery and the gospel cannot coexist. They cannot exist together forever. Whenever the gospel is preached and men are freed from the chains of sin, then they must eventually also be liberated from the chains of slavery. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that we must be patient as we work towards social change. Do what you can do when you can do it, but don't lose heart. We cannot become so easily discouraged and apathetic. We can't simply walk around and give up regarding these things and these issues that are going on in our world. We must remember the words of Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Listen, in case you haven't noticed, God's timetable and yours will never line up. God works in mysterious ways. And I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, his timetable has never followed mine. I've had a plan of how God should react. He never reacts in the time or the way I think he should. He always comes at it in a different way and a different timetable. And we've just got to understand that. The second quality that will serve you well about bringing in change in our our culture as we operate from a minority position is tact. Paul could have commanded Philemon to obey, but he didn't. He he appealed to the higher motive of love. You know, sometimes in our zeal for God, we lose our sense of balance. And, And we end up saying and doing things out of anger and out of frustration that we later end up regretting. And sometimes I've heard Christians talk about the persecution they're receiving, when really all they are suffering from is the result of their own uncontrolled temper when they talk to somebody and what they were talking about got out of hand. Proverbs twenty-five fifteen reminds us, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. This verse spells out two strategies that we can use. First is patience, which means waiting for the right moment to speak your mind, because how many of you know that timing is everything? If you embarrass someone publicly, they aren't likely to respond to you favorably. And if you ambush somebody when they walk through the door, they will regard your, your words as a personal attack. So before you speak to anybody about any subject, take your time and think and pray and ask God to give you an open door. And then when that open door comes, you're ready for the second strategy, which is using a gentle tongue. Proverbs 15:1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And as we just read, a gentle tongue can likewise break a bone. What we have here is an is a illustration of a hardened bone that is being softened bit by bit, word by word, over time by the touch of a gentle tongue. It will not happen quickly, but in most cases, gentleness accomplishes far more than threats or intimidation or anger will ever do. So really, as we talk about this word, tact, what we are saying is really nothing more than speaking the truth in love. It's one thing to speak the truth in harshness, and it's a completely other thing to speak the truth in love. Jesus did it, and he is remembered today as the supreme embodiment of love. Yet no one ever spoke the truth like Jesus did, and no one has since. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth to those in power or to challenge the rulers of his day. And when necessary, he didn't even hesitate to whip and clean out the temple, which doesn't sound like a very tactful thing to do, but after all, he is the Son of God and he did it, so it must have been the right thing to do. So what exactly is this gentle tongue that can break a bone? It's the ability to say the right thing at the right time and in the right way and doing so without saying anything that you didn't want to say and that didn't need to be said. A tactful person seeks to find a private place and a fitting moment. It means you refuse to dump all of your frustrations on that one person. You say what needs to be said in the quickest, in the kindest, and the most direct way possible, and then you move on. The third quality that will serve us well as we try to bring change to our culture and even to our personal relationships for that matter as we operate from a minority position is personal appeal. You see, sometimes we give up far too soon, or we prefer the bombastic approach when something much more low-key is what's really needed. I'm thinking of a letter. I'm thinking of a phone call. I'm thinking of, hey, can we go out and have lunch together? A brief word of encouragement, a a challenge to the downhearted, going out of our way to intercede on someone's behalf who's in need. That's what Paul did for Onesimus. He got involved. He took a chance. He made a personal appeal to Philemon. And the truth is we have so many excuses in our arsenal for non-involvement. We say, I don't want to get involved. Well, folks, that's why things are worse today and not better, because too many Christians have not gotten involved. We say, things will never change. Well, maybe not, but they're sure not going to change as long as we sit around on our blessed assurances all day long, right? We say, the world is going to the devil. Let me tell you something, the world has already gone to the devil a long time ago. But remember, Jesus defeated Satan when he rose from the dead. So what's your problem with that? We say, I'll lose my reputation if I get involved. People may misunderstand me. I might not get my promotion. I might lose my job. What will my friends think? Well, really, the only one that matters, the only one whose thoughts matter, should be your Lord. We say, I don't have the time to get involved. I'm too busy already. If we are too busy, to lend a helping hand to hurting people, or stand up for what is right in our society, then something is badly wrong with our priorities, that our schedules are so packed that we don't have time to respond when there's a need. We say, what if I get involved and I fail anyway? Well, that might happen. The point is, your job is to be faithful. You leave the results up to the Lord. Paul was in prison. He was chained to a Roman guard. He was on trial for his very life, but he found the time and the energy and the strength to help a young man in need. That is the power of a personal appeal. The fourth quality that will serve you well as you try to bring change while operating from a minority position is personal example. Paul presents an enormous lesson about the power of an individual example. I mean, consider what Paul the prisoner did. He led Onesimus to Christ. You can do that. He risked a friendship to help a new believer. You're capable of doing that as well. He took a stand in a small way. You and I can do that. He he applied the gospel message to a personal need. We can do that too. He saw God's hand at work and he gave God all the credit. We can give God the credit as well. He personally intervened and helped someone in need. You and I can do that. He offered to pay Onesimus' debt. You and I can do that for someone else. He didn't complain about the unjust system and about why he was unfairly imprisoned. He didn't focus on anything but the problem at hand. And you and I can do the same thing. He didn't try to be a hero and change the world. He tried to help out wherever he could. And you and I can do that as well. Paul didn't do anything unusual. He didn't do anything strange. He didn't do anything extraordinary. He simply did what any Christian should do and could do. That is the power of a personal example. And the fifth quality that will serve us well as we try to operate from a minority position in changing our world is initiative. It strikes me that someone might criticize the Apostle Paul along these lines. Paul, there are hundreds of millions of slaves in the Roman Empire and Onesimus is only one of them. Why are you even bothering with him? Let him live with you in Rome. And don't worry about him going back to Philemon. It won't make a difference anyway. In some ways, you think about it, that's a very persuasive statement, especially when we live in a world where evil abounds and where there are days where goodness is just almost impossible to find. But you have to start somewhere. Perhaps you've heard this little poem before. I am only one man, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. What I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. So ladies and gentlemen, when you are feeling overwhelmed by the many problems and issues surrounding you, I think it's important to remember what Paul did in Rome. Start where you are, your sphere of influence and begin to make a difference there. If you've ever seen the movie Schindler's List, at the end of the film, Oscar Schindler is is filled with remorse that he saved in his his mind so few lives. But he was reminded, you saved 1,100 lives. Yet he cried out, I could have saved more. And knowing and understanding the pain that he was going through, the Jewish survivors presented him with a gold ring inscribed with a saying from the Talmud. It says, he who saves one life saves the whole world. Here's the point. If you and I cannot save the whole world, then start with the person you can save. Help him, help her, and then move on from there. Really the whole Christian message is summed up in a statement that I once heard, love God and the person in front of you. Those are great words to live by. If you don't know where to begin by applying the truth from today's sermon, it's a great place to start. Love God and the person in front of you. That's what Paul did for Onesimus when he wrote to Philemon. That's what all of us are called to do. And by the way, did you notice the gospel message in his letter? Because there was nothing that Paul wrote where he didn't mention the gospel. You can find it in several places, but you can, most prominently you'll see it in verse 18, and that was when the apostle Paul tells Philemon that if Onesimus owes him anything, he says, then put that on my account. Put it on my tab. In all the New Testament, I don't think you will find a, a better illustration of what we call substitutionary atonement. What Onesimus owed, the apostle Paul volunteered to pay for. And when Paul paid the debt, Philemon would be satisfied, and Onesimus would be free of any obligation. That is the gospel message in real human terms, ladies and gentlemen. All of us were God's Onesimuses at one time. We were slaves to sin. We were chained to evil and we were continually running away from God. But Jesus went to the cross, and he paid the price for your sin and for my sin. And he did so, so that God's justice would be satisfied once and for all. And all that is left for us is to accept the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. To say it another way, either you can pay for your sins by spending eternity in hell, or you can trust completely in the fact that Jesus already paid your debt on the cross. He paid it all. This is a wonderful thing for us as believers of Christ to remember. When the devil rises up to accuse you, Jesus says, you put that on my account. When the world points out all of your faults, and Lord knows we have them, don't we? Jesus says, you put that on my account when your friends point out your many failures and your enemies gloat over the mistakes that you've publicly made, and even when your, your own conscience condemns you, when you feel like the biggest sinner in the world and you even feel tinges of hypocrisy coming over your soul, Jesus stands before the Father and he says, he raises his nail-pierced hands and he says, you put that on my account. It's been paid for. In putting it this way, we can see how the gospel message touches every situation in life. We were once slaves, but through Christ Jesus, we've been set free. So what do we do now? We love God and we love the person in front of us. That's an excellent place for every one of us to begin. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me to close this down? The point I am trying to make from this message today is simple. And it's that you and I can be difference makers in our personal relationships and yes, even in this crazy mixed up world that we live in. It is no time for us to be hiding in the shadows due to all the bitterness and all of the division and the violence and the chaos that's going on in our world. We just can't sit around and wait for Jesus to come and take us home, sit on our hands and do absolutely nothing. We've gotta go about life. We've gotta go about making a difference in our community and in our world for the kingdom of God. This can happen through serving, and through getting involved in in political, the political process, taking on a cause that is near and dear to your heart, or simply loving the one who is standing right before you at any moment. What I'm trying to say, High Point, is that we need to be a people of action. Let's be people with solutions and not just dwell and elaborate about all the problems that are at hand. I have seen people waste more time talking about the problems and not doing anything to try to change the problem. And that sucks the life out of you, to just lament and go on and on about, we know what the problem is. We've debated it for decades. Now we've got to move into action. Let's be a church that in spite of all the negativity going on around us, that we still believe in the power of change lives through Jesus Christ. And furthermore, let's be a church that allows our Christian convictions to drive the way that we live, the way that we, we react to the situations that, that confront us daily by allowing the love of Christ to rule in our heart. We're going to end this service today by taking communion together. If you didn't pick up the communion emblems when you came in, they were at the table out there. If you didn't, you can excuse yourself and go get them and come right back. But before we, we take communion, I've asked the worship team to come up and lead us in another song. Come to the altar. It's not just about this altar here. Many have called the table of communion an altar as well. Let's sing this song together. Reasons that Jesus told us to always remember what He accomplished on the cross was because of what we've talked about today making a difference, using our Christian influence in, in the right ways in order to affect change in our culture for the kingdom of God. What I mean is, when we reflect on what Jesus did for us then doesn't it seem fitting that we would live in such a way as to make a difference in our world for his kingdom's sake? See, on that cross, Jesus paid it all. He picked up your tab and my tab, so to speak, like Paul did with Onesimus. He saved you from your sin, he set you free, He provides you with eternal life when your time on this earth is done, whether that be you pass away or whether that be He comes and takes us home. And this is why we remember the cross and what took place there on our behalf. It's when the sinless Son of God was first beaten beyond recognition. That's what the bread represents. It represents the body of Christ. And when he hung there on that cross and his precious blood poured out onto the ground, that's what the juice represents, the blood of Jesus. When we participate in communion, we remember what a special and priceless gift it was that Jesus gave to us. But before we participate in communion, the the Bible has something to say about how we participate in communion in 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 27 through 29. And this is what it says. Therefore, therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Every time we take communion, we must examine our hearts. If there is any unconfessed sin in our life, we must confess it. We must repent of it because God has no part with sin. Sin is a barrier between you and your Lord. So if we don't do this, then we are taking communion in an unworthy manner and therefore we are bringing judgment upon ourselves. And if you are here, or if you are watching online and you've never given your heart to Jesus, you've you've never asked him to forgive you of your sin and to be the Lord of your life, you can do so today before we take communion together. And in doing so, all of us can participate in communion together in a worthy manner by remembering and honoring Jesus. We're going to have a moment of silence, where all you're going to hear is the music playing softly behind me. It is during that time that I used to pray, and I got thinking one day, and I thought, why should I be praying when we should all be praying ourselves? Because I think when I pray, you listen to what I'm saying, and you're not praying yourself. And this is a very private and a very intimate moment whenever we enter into communion. While this music is playing, I want all of you to go to the Lord in prayer. I want you to confess your sin to him. I want you to make sure that things are right between you and the Lord. If you're watching online, or again, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, all you have to do is ask him to forgive you of your sin. Tell him you believe he is the only way to the Father, that you receive him as Lord. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And every one of us at that point will be able to participate in communion together. So I want you to take a few moments while you hear this music Just to reach out to God in your own way, in your own words, whether it be audibly or silent in your spirit, however you pray, let's spend a few moments connecting with our Lord. moment of prayer and meditation, you're reading our hearts. You know what's on our mind. You knew before we even thought them. So Lord, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us for our wrong attitudes. Forgive us for our outbursts of anger. Forgive us when we don't use tact. Forgive us when we bulldoze our ideas forward and not seek to love you and the one who's standing in front of us. Forgive us when we stayed silent when we should have spoken out for truth. Forgive us when we spoke when we should have not said anything. Lord, I pray that you will Help us to become the men and women of God that you truly want us to be in all situations in this life. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. It cleanses us of our sin. Thank you for making us whole. And now as we enter into this time of communion, Lord, I pray that it would be a very special moment for each one here and those who are watching online. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you've never use these disposable communion emblems. There is a cellophane layer that you need to peel (laughs) that unveils the bread. And then there is a foil one that unveils the wine or the juice, excuse me. And I'm having a hard time with mine. So you take your time, okay? It's funny, I was just joking about this with someone before the service that I've been lucky, and I'm not so lucky. I took communion at the early service, so I will participate with the juice, but I, don't, I can't get the bread out of this thing. I pulled the, the thing off. So if somebody wants to help a brother out, I will. The night that Jesus was betrayed and, and arrested, prior to that, the last meal that he had with his disciples, he took the bread and he blessed it, and he gave thanks for it. And he told them, he said, take and eat of this. He says, this is representative of my body, which will soon be broken for you. And he says, and every time you do this, he said, do so in remembrance of me. As you eat this bread, I want you to remember the bruised and the battered body of the Lord Jesus Christ that was sacrificed for you. And if you need healing in your body today, I want you to remember what the Bible says. The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It also says that by his stripes, that beating that he took, we are healed. You may eat of the bread. same manner, he also took the juice, the, the the goblet, and he said, this is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. The, 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 the wine represented the blood of Jesus that would soon be shed for the remission of our sins. And as you drink of this juice, I want you to be reminded of the blood that poured out of the body of our Lord and Savior. It was poured out to atone, to erase, to cover. It's that that, that substitution we talked about as Paul paid Onesimus' death, uh, debt, Jesus paid ours and his blood covered and erased our sin. It's his blood that sets us free. You may drink of the juice. Will you stand with us as we sing? you the blood of Jesus. Oh. thank you for this time of communion where we remember what you've done for us. You've done something for us that no man can do for themselves. No amount of good works or goodness or good attitudes can, can get us into heaven, only your blood that atones for our sin. And so we thank you for that. Father, I pray that we would apply the truths from this message today how to bring change into our culture and into our lives and into our personal relationships. That we uh, we would make every effort to bring change. That we would no longer remain a silent minority, but that we would become a vocal minority. That we would stand up for those things that are right. Even if we face ridicule from those outside of the church, which we will. Your word says, if they hated me, they will hate you. And Father, we've all experienced that at one time. But I pray that you will give us the courage to stand for what we know to be true. Because we know that this world and its systems will all vanish one day. And the only thing that will matter will be our time in your presence. And that place of perfect peace where we won't deal with the struggles that we deal with here today. So, God, I ask that you help us to manage them well, with integrity with courage in the way that you would want us to, and that we would not stand on the sidelines any longer, but we would make every effort that we can to make a difference, even if it is for the person who stands before us. Let us be reminded that we don't have to change the world. We just have to change every circumstance that we can get involved in, and that usually involves one person at a time. So Father, help us to be courageous, and help us to be faithful to do those things that you've called us to do and stand up for righteousness in a world where there is so very little. We thank you for the truth in your word. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the opportunity for us to come together here today and worship you and to hear your word. As we leave here today, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that they would be uplifting, they would be deserving of the one who gave his life for us. Father, I ask that you would keep us safe till we gather together again to, uh, next week, keep us safe from COVID, keep us safe from any other injuries or sicknesses that may befall us. And Father, when we come back together again next week. I pray that uh, that you will have a word for us that will encourage us and help us to become closer into the image of Jesus Christ, because that's your desire for us, that we would become more like you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit in our lives. We ask your blessings upon this congregation as they leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here.